Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert and I'll be your host. Today I'm talking about plots. It's about time. Well, it's only been one podcast between when I said I'd do it now, so I don't feel too bad. But um, it did take a little bit of planning and some work and, and I wanted to kind of catch up on my own understanding of the concept before I tried to speak intelligently about it. And then I wanted to really think about how I was going to present the information. So what I decided to do is I grabbed a couple of movies and a couple of books and I'm just going to use them as my examples and talk through sort of what plot means and further discuss when people throw out the uh, term, well, that doesn't have any plot because you hear that all the time. That movie was bad because it doesn't have any plot or whatever people think. So um, the stuff that I'm going to talk about is the movie Shoot 'Em Up from 2007 with Clive Owen. It was directed by Michael Davis. I'm going to talk about Falling Down from 1993 with Michael Douglas, directed by Joel Schumacher. Die Hard with Bruce Willis from 1988, directed by John McTiernan. I'm going to talk about the Dragonlance novel Dragons of Autumn Twilight by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Then I'm going to talk about Dune by Frank Herbert. The first one, not the whole series, because I could do a whole podcast on that and probably should at some point. But anyway, the basic concept of plot is that it's the stuff going on with whatever you're watching, listening to, reading. It's the stuff that the characters get involved with. So essentially, you've got a guy who is climbing a tree. The plot is all the people throwing rocks at him, the obstacles, the question of why is he in the tree, and then, of course, how he's going to get out. And that's a very simplified way of looking at it. Effectively, you need a lead character that can take you through a story, and that story, whatever it is, and the events that create the story and bridge the gap between the different obstacles create your plot. I'm going to start out by talking about Die Hard because so many people already know it, and it's a great example of something that's really simple, and I know that a lot of people complained about it not having any plot back when it came out, so it's a pretty good place to start. I mean, the concept is that you've got a cop who has come to Los Angeles to visit his family for Christmas. Uh, They haven't divorced, but it seems like maybe there is that on the horizon. And when he gets there, he finds that there's this crazy Christmas party going on and people are wild. And whilst he's coming down from the jet lag of flying from New York to California, terrorists take over the building and start spouting off all this nonsense about wanting their brothers in arms rescued and brought out of prison and all this other stuff. And in the meantime, they murder someone. What we ultimately find out is that they are there to steal bearer bonds and that all of the terrorist rhetoric is nonsense. So where is the plot in Die Hard? Well, we've already got a main character, and that is John McClane. John McClane is sort of a everyman cop. He's someone that everyone in the audience is supposed to relate to. Or if they don't, they at least appreciate his verve and sarcasm and directness. I'd honestly argue that if it wasn't Bruce Willis playing the character with all of the charisma that he brings to the screen, 
we'd have a harder time caring about John McClane. In fact, I think that if it would have been like Sylvester Stallone, Die Hard might have been another throwaway movie like Cobra or something. But because we had someone who was really interesting to watch and to carry us through this story, it pretty much became a classic and is now being always argued about as a Christmas film. Die Hard is a really easy target for the no plot crowd because it's very straightforward and it's not got a whole lot going on, but that doesn't mean that it lacks plot. And it's even more interesting is that it is based on a novel called Nothing Lasts Forever um, by Roderick Thorpe, and that came out in 1979. And the differences are pretty profound, but it's got a lot going that's exactly the same. Um, in the uh, book, he is still a uh, barefoot guy at a Christmas party on a big old building. He is retired in this case. Um, he's visiting his daughter and grandchildren rather than his wife. Um, you still have Al Powell. You still have Robinson. Uh, you've got Gruber. You've got Carl. So uh, even the climax is relatively close to the same with Gruber falling to his death and Carl coming back from the grave at the last second to shoot a whole bunch of people. One of the big differences is that they are looking at an oil company in the book and they uh, are after $6 million in a uh, corrupt deal and that sort of thing. It's been modernized for Die Hard and brought up to speed to that moment of 1988. But for the most part, if you read the book, it is so close to the same. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, but let's break it down. So... John McClane is our lead character. He's going to carry us through the story. He has many obstacles. The first primary obstacle that he has to deal with once the story really gets going is that he forgot his shoes, that he had taken them off and he didn't have time to grab them before he had to run out and go through the elevator. So now we've got a uh, part of the story that we can carry through as an obstacle many times between not only him having to travel over the broken glass later, but just the inconvenience of being barefoot the whole time. And uh, and some of the hilarity that comes from that as well. We've got the police showing up and not really wanting his help, not trusting him, and not even knowing whether or not there are actually a bunch of terrorists out there or not. So there's quite a few little things that he has to contend with. He's only got whatever ammunition he had with him. Um, I don't even think he has a second magazine, so he's got to be careful until he can get his hands on the machine gun. So all of these are just sort of the roadblocks and his, for lack of a better term, the equipment he has to get him through the story. The real story is Hans Gruber attempting to steal the bearer bonds with his elaborate plan to keep the police at bay and then mess with the feds so that Ultimately, he can blow up the top of the building, kill all the hostages, and him and his people just slip out without being noticed. You know, perfect heist kind of thing. So while this is kind of a run-of-the-mill action movie on the surface, it's really a heist movie. In fact, in another version, we would be following Gruber and his cronies as the main characters. You know, you could see it being a an Ocean-style movie if he didn't murder the... Uh, president guy right off the bat i mean you could easily see him and his companions being the good guys but obviously considering all of the horrors that they perpetrate through the film <laughs> they're done 
very dirty and they're made to look very bad. Um, so if we look at the story plot elements, the first thing that happens is after McLean gets to the building is that the villains show up and they take over the whole building behind the scenes. It's just such a big building. Nobody's really paying attention. The security is too light. They march through and do everything they need to do. And once they have the building, they go up and they take all the hostages. Once they have the hostages, they bring the president guy into the back room to try and get information out of him so they can break into the safe. When that fails, they move to plan B. All the while, McLean is trying to gather information so that he can decide on how to best protect the hostages. So his goal, McLean's goal, is twofold. He wants to survive, obviously, and he wants to protect all of those hostages. He wants to save all the people who are effectively caught up in this disaster. Uh, bringing the bad guys to justice is probably a distant third when you think of the first two options. He's much more concerned about his own well-being and the well-being of the other people. And that's pretty evident when he just starts murdering the terrorists rather than trying to bring them to any form of justice. Now, I'm not saying I blame him. It's not like he's got handcuffs. He has nowhere to put these guys and they are heavily armed and they clearly have no qualms about murdering people. So he's probably doing the right thing. But uh, regardless, it is a little bit extreme. Um, and I should point out, it does follow the book. He pretty much systematically goes around and murders all the terrorists in that too, without any help from the police. Occasionally talks to Powell and uh, chats him up. But I mean, there's not a whole lot of assistance from them. Okay, so... He's going around killing the terrorists. They're trying to find him. Now he's doing a cat and mouse thing where he knows that he had the upper hand with the first few because they weren't expecting him. But the longer this draws out, the more he becomes the hunted and they really dedicate their time and resources to stop him. So if we go back to my concept of a guy climbs a tree, people throw rocks at him. Now we have to get him out of the tree and either relatively unscathed or dead. <laughs> and so in the case of Die Hard, he has, after he kills the first two guys and writes on them the I have a machine gun, ho, 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 he has effectively climbed the tree and now the terrorists are throwing the rocks at him and he has to find a way to get down. And in this case, that ultimately is him <laughs> pretty much finishing them all off, killing everybody so that there is just nobody left. And along the way, there are kinks and bumps in the road um ellis trying to talk him down pretending to be his buddy trying to sell it as he were and failing and dying and you know mclean getting blamed by the police for letting him die and i mean just all kinds of that just little stuff him encountering gruber up in the upper floors who's looking for the detonators that he stole all of those things are just parts of the story that help give you the sense of concern and when we're reading a book or watching a movie the sort of unwritten concept is that we want to worry about what's happening because we want to see it resolve for good or ill whether it's a happy ending or a sad ending and Die Hard is another great example of that because in the movie Everyone comes out ahead. Everybody walks away. Who should? All of the good guys survive. Uh, they kill all the bad guys. Powell draws his weapon and saves McLean at the very end from Carl. And it's actually 
as uplifting as it can be. I mean, even McLean and his wife look like they might be getting back together and have fixed things. So, in the book, on the other hand, much like the movie, Gruber falls to his death, but in this case, he actually drags the main character's daughter with him, and they both die. So, McLean loses his daughter in that one. Pretty harsh, but interesting that two stories end with a happy ending or a sad ending, depending on which one you consumed. And so either way they resolved and our questions are answered. Will McLean survive and save the hostages? Those two points that I brought up at the beginning when we are worrying about how to resolve our plot and what is the plot in this case, he had two objectives, the various things we've already talked about came up in his way. And the end result was saved. Everybody walked away with his wife Guy gets the curl if you want to go that far. Or in the book, he finishes everybody off. His daughter dies. The main bad guy dies. And he gets medical attention and the story's over. So that is Die Hard. And as we can see, story itself, the events that the characters get involved with, that's plot. Whether or not we want to say that there is no plot, we generally are meaning that it doesn't have enough plot to warrant being called that. And that is a fantastic segue into the movie Shoot 'em Up from 2007 with Clive Owen. Talked about it at the beginning. Basically, the synopsis of this movie <laughs> that I'm going to rewrite for this, uh, for the purposes of this podcast, is that the main character has to defend a baby from insane people culminating in a conspiracy by the gun industry to prevent an anti-gun president from shutting them down. And as absurd as that sounds, this movie is even more of a vehicle to address observations than Die Hard. In Die Hard, yeah, you could say that all of the events in it are pretty much designed to give Bruce Willis a chance to be clever and funny and awesome. But Shoot 'em Up is even worse. The main character has a running gag where he'll say, you know what I hate? And then go off on a diatribe of some social thing that just annoys him, whether it's people driving weird or whatever, doesn't matter. And in between all that, he just recklessly murders. I don't even know how many people I should look up the body count. It's probably hundreds. Who knows? So let's get a little bit more specific and shoot him up. The main character stumbles on this situation where this woman's about to give birth. All these guys are trying to kill her. She ends up giving birth to him and then she dies and he takes it upon himself to protect the baby long enough to get it to a friend. And as soon as he turns over the baby, he figures I'm done. Then some people come in, they kidnap her more havoc ensues. He fights to get him back and uncovers the conspiracy as he goes uh, primarily you have to realize that it's mostly a showpiece for violence and this character having the opportunity to just be annoyed. And it's another instance where the person who's in it is so charming and fun to watch that you don't really mind that the story is mostly absurd and overly simplified. The big twists in it, you know, they're just, I mean, they're kind of shrug worthy. They didn't move me per se, much like the twist in Die Hard, where you find out that no, they're not there to stop 
their uh, companions from being in prison. They're there to steal. It's not a big shock. <laughs> so, I mean, they were trying to get in a safe right off the bat. It's it's not rocket science to figure out what they're up to. And the same with shoot 'em up. When you find out that uh, the gun industry has effectively blackmailed or somehow paid off the senator who's about to become a president, you're not surprised. And the only thing really surprising about the movie is that somebody actually spent the time to make it. Um, and all that said, I should say I had a great time watching it. It was really fun to watch when it came out. I did try to watch it more recently, and it's a lot more cringe worthy on several levels. Um, but that said, it's a great example of a movie that people say that movie has no plot. Well, I mean, unfortunately, as silly as it is, the movie does have a plot. And the plot is that this child is a perfect marrow donor for this other guy. And these other people are trying to kill that child so that that guy can't become president. And then another character who just wants to be left alone, gets caught up in the middle of it, and he has to defend the baby and effectively stop the conspiracy. I mean, it's that simple. That doesn't mean that it didn't have a plot. It just means that it's really straightforward and simple enough to not get in the way of watching Clive Owen be awesome. I mean, I don't have a lot to say about it that wouldn't just disparage the movie more, but it is a great example because I remember very distinctly when I saw that back in 2007, people were giving it a real hard time for just being ridiculous and no plot, no story. What's the point? And I mean, you, you're not necessarily wrong when you say it had no point to being made at least, but the story did exist. And it's interesting that I bring up the whole point of uh, this character talking about the things that annoy him. Because that leads me to the next movie, which is Falling Down in 1993. And Michael Douglas plays what appears to be an everyman. Uh, it starts out and he's just baking in his car. They're stuck in traffic. He's having sensory overload from all the people around him just doing stuff. Some are yelling on their phones. There's children losing their minds. There's construction. And it really is grating on that commuter hatred that pretty much everybody shares. And as you get into the movie, uh, a lot of the events that happen in it are sort of addressing things that annoyed people at that time in 1993. And today, I just recently tried to watch this as well. It's also pretty cringy. Uh, it's also insanely politically incorrect. And um, his character does some pretty questionable things. But I think that makes it interesting because since Michael Douglas is the main character and he's in all the promotional material, I am of the impression that Joel Schumacher wanted you to believe he was the protagonist, but in reality, he's the antagonist. He's actually the bad guy. And in many ways, you're supposed to be watching it going, yeah, I'm tired of whatever that is that you're complaining about too. So that at some point you'll feel bad and go, wow, maybe... <laughs> Maybe I'm maybe I'm too harsh or whatever. I don't know what message they were necessarily going for. But at a certain point, he crosses the line and you're like, well, OK, you know what? I was with you at X, but now that you're at Z, I'm I'm going to have to get off this crazy bus. Um, so the ultimate story is that he has had a really rough time. 
he wants to get to his uh, ex-wife's house for his his daughter's birthday and there's obviously a bunch of tension there he's abandoned his car because of the traffic and he's gone on foot and as he has gone on foot he gets into a variety of adventures that are just insane from (laughs) being really harsh to a guy who runs a convenience store because of the price of soda to beating up some gang members who don't want him on their turf i mean just it's insane the stuff that he gets into Uh, a very famous scene is when he goes into a fast food place and he wants to order breakfast and they're like sorry we stopped at 11 30 and he looks and it's like 11 34 and then you know he pulls out a gun and starts threatening people basically and demands certain things and it's it's just nuts and and his observations aren't wrong like for instance he gets his burger and he it's this like flat (laughs) biscuit looking thing with meat in it and he goes look at that picture you know it's it's juicy and it's fluffy and it looks amazing and and it's savory and now look at this squashed thing how can you even do that you know and it's it's absurdity and it, it just it's so unnecessary but this guy's lost it and he's done and so you know that's just one more thing now the part that makes the movie interesting now for me because back then you're you're caught up in the spectacle when these things first come out especially in 1990s movies like that you're just like whoa this guy's out of control and it sort of obfuscates the more interesting elements of the movie there's a police officer on the verge of retiring in fact it's his last day and he's a robbery detective. And so one of the victims of Michael Douglas's character comes in and is supposed to give him a statement. But the odd thing about the main character is that he does trash the guy's shop and he does kind of beat on him a little bit, but he still pays for the drink. He just doesn't pay the price the guy was asking. So when this poor victim explains that the guy paid, um, the other detective's like, you know what? I'm sorry you wasted your time if you were assaulted, we need to talk to somebody else and he takes him away. And at that point, the retired police officer is pretty, it's pretty clear. He's like, whatever, I guess that's done. Don't have to worry about that anymore. And then later he hears about another incident and the description of the guy is the same. So now he starts to sort of piece together that this guy is making his way through the city and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so sort of like a horror novel where, We start with one character who's doing an investigation and then at some point they basically hand the baton off to somebody else that we pay attention to. That happens here. So at the beginning we sort of see Michael Douglas just losing his shit and he's going crazy doing all manner of nonsense. And then we enter the police officer who starts to investigate it. And then through his perspective we begin to understand what's going on with this guy. He gathers enough evidence to really dig into his psyche a little bit, discover what's ailing him and what's pushed him to do all this crazy stuff. And ultimately by the end of the situation, uh, he's, he's got it all put together and grows as a person, if you will, or changes his perspective somewhat. And I mean, that's ultimately what we want in a story. When we're creating plot, we want to start our characters at one part of the tale. They are say at a and at the end they are at C because the events have changed them they've changed their perspective they've challenged their views they've 
given them new skills or new perspective or new appreciation for whatever, their friends, their spouse, their own personality, whatever it is, we want them to change because all the stuff that happens generally is not going to be the day-to-day. That's the other thing about plot for the most part. In a movie where you'd have two guys sitting around in a restaurant just chatting about the fact that they both work at Barnes & Noble and going through some of the antics that they see their customers go through. Chances of these guys ending the evening being vastly different people is pretty slim. I mean, they both work at the same place. They've all seen this stuff. They're just relating things that they missed. So if you followed that in a book or a movie, by the end, you'd be like, that doesn't really have a plot. And you'd be right. And there's plenty of stories like that. I would argue (laughs) that only lovers left alive actually doesn't have a plot, but I'm afraid that that would take me a whole bunch more time to talk about that particular film. I'll probably do it uh, another time. And it's especially interesting to take that one and compare it to its sister movie, kiss of the damned. Um, I'll pencil that in for another compare and contrast for those two. But in the case of falling down, the plot is very simple. Character A wants to get to his daughter's birthday. He's got a lot of obstacles in his way. Meanwhile, the police officer wants to stop his rampage as he goes through the town and just causes havoc and uh, causes a lot of people to get hurt and some people to die. Um, So he's basically lost his mind and he needs to be stopped. And uh, while it's easy to say that falling down is just a vehicle to shine a spotlight on stuff that annoys us in 1993 there is a story there that helps compel it along and while i would say that his complaints are way heavy-handed to the point where they're kind of embarrassing um those are are not as important as the message of just society crushing this man and leading him to that point where he just is done and does all the horrible things that he does so Let's move on to some books. I picked a fantasy novel and a science fiction novel. The fantasy novel is part of a massive series that if you're familiar with Dragonlance, you know already. The first book I'm going to talk about is a trilogy that is probably now part of a series of 30, 40, 50 books. Who knows? I kind of lost track after I read the Legends series. And then, of course, Dune is considered one of the more complicated novels, and that is given some good evidence by the fact that it's taken multiple movies to get it right. And in some of these cases, maybe the movies still didn't get it right. But uh, we'll start with Dragonlance. So the story of Dragonlance, this one has a robust story. In fact, it reads very much like a D&D campaign. And if you're a fan of role-playing games, then you know those have got to have story to carry you between the fights. Otherwise, it's just a board game. And in this case, they start off with a bunch of heroes who have come back together uh, after parting to discover whether or not the gods still exist. They're looking for any proof that there are gods still out there. And after the time period that they um, went off on their own to do this, they are now coming home and all of them have failed. They have not found any evidence to support the existence of the gods. But of course, when they get there, they discover that uh, there is actually proof right there. This uh, tribeswoman and her bodyguard are there and they heal a man that has been injured. And then he uh, basically 
gets their version of the Inquisition to chase them out of town and thus begins our adventure. And so we have the uh, in medias res going on here, which is really cool. There's a whole story before it happened and we're jumping in pretty late in the game because these people know each other from way back. Like they were good friends when they were much younger, all growing up around this area. Now they've been gone for a whole bunch of years and they're coming back together to find out that they've all grown and changed and become better. And in some cases more bitter. And now they're thrown into a scenario where they have to work together and survive while also figuring some things out. And uh, meanwhile, of course, because it's an epic fantasy, a uh, dark force is rising and it's basically going to cover the world in darkness and violence and war and all that horrible stuff. So interestingly enough, later, of course, the books did prequels and talked about all that time they were gone and did solo novels. I read a couple of them. They weren't bad. But Dragons of Autumn Twilight really does carry you from this beginning point where the characters, it seems like that's the end of their road. Like we're at the end of their story when they pick up something brand new and they start working with this priest and have to protect her because, you know, she may well represent exactly what they all wanted to find. And whether they doubt or not, she has done some things that makes them go, well, I mean, that looks pretty much like healing magic and that's divine and maybe we should do something about this. So that's their catalyst. Protect her. Get her to a specific place. She sort of knows where she needs to go. And along the way, they have dozens of obstacles and roadblocks and bumps in the road from crazy monsters they've never seen before to uh, other creatures that don't normally come up that far. And then an entire city that's been ruined that is going to not necessarily have the answers they were hoping for, but maybe they'll find them after all. You don't really know until you get there and then it's pretty detailed. And of course, this is a famous book for having a character in the party that people don't necessarily trust in Raceland because, you know, he's, he's not wearing the proper mage robes that they expected. So he may not necessarily be on their side and you just have a lot of intrigue going on in there. And it's important to note that character problems and um, interesting parts of those characters can obfuscate the lack of story. They can try and make you think that their story when there isn't anything there or little personal side notes aren't necessarily story. They're just things to build that particular character and cement their place in the story. But in Dragonlance, and even in Autumn Twilight, by the end, the characters have changed considerably. Um, they've all come to understand that in some cases, they might not be cut out for this anymore. And in some cases, they have uh, found themselves. This is exactly what they should be doing. And so just to, just to sum up and simplify the Dragonlance Autumn Twilight plot, a whole bunch of characters get together they encounter something that they've been looking for for a very long time. Uh, it's proven to them through practical application. They then escort that person through the world, through all sorts of hardship to come to a place that she believes is going to help them prove the existence of the gods. That's pretty much the plot of the first book. And, uh, I find it amusing that I'm able to simplify it that much because it is pretty long 
But there are so many characters and so many things to dive into and so much to understand about the world because it's also a world-building novel before we get into the second and third books, which are a bit shorter because there isn't quite as much of that world-building going on. Analyzing the first book in a trilogy is an interesting exercise because we're really just laying the groundwork for a much larger story. In some cases, the first book in a trilogy is practically just a prologue, but Dragons of Autumn Twilight actually gets some things done. I mean, you get to learn a lot and you see a lot of the obstacles they're going to face later, uh, just glimpses of in some cases, but later on you get much more of a sense of how much danger the world has fallen into. I think it's a really good place to start if you want to understand plotting and story and how to build an interesting uh, overall experience over three books. The Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Dragons of Winter Night, and Dragons of Spring Dawning are an excellent series for you to do that with. Um, Not only are they a lot of fun, but the two people who wrote those really understand how to keep people engaged, uh, particularly if you are a fan of role-playing games because you can kind of come at it from the perspective of, man, I I, I could just imagine Tannis's player doing that or coming to that conclusion. Or when that character did this thing and made a mistake, I could see them rolling really poorly or whatever. I mean, it's just, that's just an extra level of fun when you're reading those books in particular, but they're not necessarily so much as a master class on storytelling, but they're really, really good and they're very engaging and moving too, because you really come to care about those characters because the stuff they're experiencing is harsh and the way they address it is just, it's, it's more realistic than you would expect from your standard fantasy fair. So I absolutely recommend that one. Um, it's a good place to start. And that leads me to my last book that I want to talk about. And that is Dune. So Dune is interesting because at its heart, the story is very simple, but because there's so much world building going on, it becomes convoluted, confusing, and, and all of that stuff obfuscates the simplicity of the story. Because in many ways, it's just this, a young man attempts to take his birthright and is forced to get revenge for the wrongs of his family and then ascend to a throne. It's that simple. That's all the Dune's about. And everything else in between is just color to make that very basic story that we have seen, read, and experienced dozens of times. And all of the other stuff just makes it interesting. The spice, the houses, the villainy, even the villains aren't necessarily that unique. They're just interesting in this setting, which is somewhat new especially when it came out. But if we go a little bit deeper on Dune, we've got Paul Atreides, who we know there's something weird about him because his mother's mentor tells her, why did you have a son when you were told not to? So right there, that's interesting. And we're going to store that away for later. And as we go along, we discover that he potentially could be a super being uh, through a genetic breeding program that has culminated with him um and then all of that stuff you sort of put on the back burner as we move into some more court intrigue as the houses are vying for the most precious uh substance in the universe and the atreides are now being asked to govern that while their enemies are forced to pull out 
And of course, later on, we find out that their enemies are only doing so temporarily, that they've made a pact with the emperor to destroy the Atreides and effectively get rid of them so that they wouldn't challenge the emperor's rule because of their own popularity growing among the other houses uh, throughout the uh, universe. So again, all of that stuff is just obfuscation. It's just the color to the real story because if we just follow Paul, which for the most part we do, he goes to Arrakis. He's this super being, or at least potentially he is, uh, impacted by this crazy substance that can extend life. And in some cases, consciousness, and he ends up being as close to that super being as you can be. And then is almost killed, escapes, unifies a tribal nation, and then destroys his enemies and takes what's his. Uh, he gets revenge, basically. And everything that happens in between there is just, you know, the obstacles that Paul had to overcome. Um, now, obviously, Frank Herbert was addressing other things, too. He was an ecologist, and he was really going into the concept of uh, just how we treat the world uh, for a specific substance. In our case, oil. It's a pretty heavy-handed metaphor with the spice. You've got the tribal folks representing Middle Eastern cultures. You've got the emperor who could be representing any first world power trying to exploit oil for their own means and ends. It's pretty heavy-handed, but it doesn't obscure the plot. And that's something else that people seem to uh, make a mistake about when it comes to judging either things like Star Trek or Doctor Who or anything that brings in social issues. People are like, that's just covering up the plot. Well, in a lot of ways, sometimes people are writing a story to address things that they see as a problem. They're going to shine a spotlight on something and they're going to do it through the uh, medium that they know, whether it's a television show, a movie, a book, a web comic, whatever they've got, they're going to talk about issues. It might be racism. It might be a police state. It could be in Frank Herbert's case, ecology, whatever it is. It's not only their prerogative, it's what they wanted to do. And it's also what science fiction was generally being used for to illuminate issues in some extreme way. I mean, oftentimes in science fiction, you have to divorce yourself from reality and suspend your disbelief because the kinds of things that they're talking about are outlandish and probably could never really happen. Uh, if you take the movie Minority Report, pre-crime makes no sense for a whole lot of reasons. It's not going to last forever because eventually the precogs are going to die of old age and then pre-crime's gone. And then what happens? And the concept of the, of the Minority Report itself, the idea that one of the three is not unanimous and they just toss that file is insane. Many of these cases, if they made it up to the Supreme Court, would get tossed out because the people didn't do anything wrong. The thought that you could ever convince anyone <laughs> to pass laws for pre-crime is crazy. But that's not the point of the story. The story is not the realism of pre-crime. It's not delving into the ethics of it necessarily. I mean, they do try to talk about it a little bit, but it, it it's uh, thrown out with absurdity. The ultimate point is that if you could stop a crime before it happened, would you? And what lengths would you go to to do so? Um, so, I don't know. 
it's one of those things that when you think about science fiction and you think about uh, messages, they go hand in hand. Science fiction is rarely just pretty explosions in action. Even the most schlocky version deals with companionship and racism and overcoming tremendous adversity by banding together and overcoming our differences, whatever the case may be. And I'm thinking of Starship Troopers. That's a great example of something that looks like it's just ridiculous, but I mean, it's dealing with fascism and militarism and all kinds of concepts, even though it diverged from the book. Then there's an old Roger Corman movie, Battle Beyond the Stars, where this peaceful planet is basically getting uh, wrecked by these crazy bad guys for no real good reason. And so they go out and find all these people and show them that they're willing to fight. Basically, it's Seven Samurai again. Um, and they bring together a disparate group so that they can help defend the planet. And in that, they sort of learn to defend themselves and they they grow and change. And I mean, they do everything that I've been talking about. And they do it on a shoestring budget with some very silly special effects. So that's just science fiction. And Dune in particular, it had a lot to say. But at its heart, its plot is very simple. And it is there. So it's hard to say it has no plot. It's also hard to say it has too much plot. You might argue it has too much world building. And there are plenty of stories that have that. But Dune, I don't know. I mean, obviously those movies were coming out. And in some cases, like the David Lynch version, you were given a pamphlet in some theaters to sort of understand some of the concepts that you were going to walk into. All right, let's sum up this conversation about plot. The reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I kept hearing people say that X, Y, or Z didn't have any plot. When they really mean to say they didn't have much plot, that the story was really thin or it was transparent or it was easy to see through or they caught on too quick, whatever the case may be, it's sort of blanket statement. It has no plot when maybe it's just because it was too convoluted or it was transparent. We just didn't like it. It didn't engage us. It didn't create worry for the characters that we were watching. So we didn't have the emotional resonance required to enjoy whatever it was we were experiencing. Bad plot will do that. It's when you notice it that you start to throw out. It has no plot. In reality, it just didn't have one you liked. Simple does not necessarily mean bad. Look at Die Hard. Super, super simple, but a huge classic. People watch it every Christmas now. So ultimately, when we look at a piece, whether it's a book, a movie, a play, a comic, whatever, we have to remember that plot is the story. It's the thing that compels the characters from event to event, from obstacle to obstacle. It is the stuff they engage with. And if that is non-existent, it doesn't matter how cool the character is. Generally speaking, the story is going to fail. Now, on occasion, there are pieces that we'll watch or experience where the people are so compelling that it doesn't matter that very little happens because um, I'm sure you've heard the term, I would watch that person read the phone book because they're just so cool. And in those cases, yeah, I mean, they get a pass, but it's hard. Um, and so very soon I'm going to discuss Only Lovers Left Alive and Kiss of the Damned and sort of analyze those two as to why one is lacking in the plot department and the other one has it and is lesser known with lesser known people. 
Uh, I think that'll be an interesting segue from this whole concept of plot too. If you'd like to discuss plot in greater detail, feel free to send me a message, uh, send me any questions you might have, thoughts, comments, challenges, whatever you'd like. I'll be happy to address them. I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, As far as this discussion of plot, however, I think we're about done. And I want to thank you very much for stopping by. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, please check out the website at www.societycasefiles.com. And if you'd like to support the project, feel free to visit www.ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. Thanks again. Look forward to seeing you next time.